afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. St. Patrick is among the best-known saints. He has one of the most uh, memorable feast days. What do we actually know about his life, especially his early years? How did he come to be a missionary? Why did he choose to go to Ireland? And as we celebrate the Feast of St. Patrick uh, this year, we're going to take a look at his life. My guest, Philip Freeman, is the author of four books, including St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. Philip, good to have you again. Thanks. Good to be here. Let's go over some basic uh, questions. A lot of times with early saints like this, there are legends that grow up around them. Um, how much history do we have, solid history, about St. Patrick of Ireland? Well, actually, we have a good deal. Uh, there are a lot of later legends that grow up around Patrick, the driving the snakes out of Ireland and all of that. But mm-hmm. thanks to the, the, the wonderful fact that we have two actual letters that were written by Patrick himself, uh, and then copies of these were preserved, we actually know more about Patrick than we do almost any saint from that period. Wow. Good. Uh, these two letters, what were the occasion for the letters? Well, the first one was uh, when some, uh, well, Patrick was in Ireland for both of these, and he's an old man writing them. Uh, and the first one was when a British king uh, sent slave raiders over and kidnapped some of Patrick's uh, converts uh, and then hauled them back to Britain to sell them into slavery. And Patrick wrote a letter and said, uh, basically, uh, you can't do this. Uh, you've got to let them go. Uh, and his second letter was a letter to mostly to the bishops of Britain who were uh, calling Patrick to task for uh, some uh, what they saw as financial irregularities and just some odd things he was doing in Ireland. Hmm. So is his... Is he is, is that an apologetic? It is. It really okay. is an apologetic letter in the sense of a defense. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Take me back to his uh, upbringing, his uh, his childhood, mom and dad, uh, extended family. What were they like? What do well, we, we know we know from his two letters. Uh, fortunately, he talks about this, and he says that he was uh, raised in Britain. He was. Uh, that's one thing might surprise people. He was not Irish. Uh, he was raised somewhere in Britain. We don't know exactly where. Uh, and he was raised in the last years of the Roman Empire, when Rome was still a power in Britain, before they withdrew the legions. So Patrick uh, saw himself, and he was, a Roman citizen. And he came from a, um, a noble family, a fairly wealthy family, uh, that uh, was um, important in government uh, in, the, uh, in the area. Uh, his father was a deacon, his grandfather was a priest. Uh, and so Patrick grew up in a life of luxury, and he uh, lived on a villa outside of a town, uh, and he certainly had slaves who waited on him, uh, and everything uh, was going really, really well for Patrick until he was about 16 years old when he was kidnapped by Irish slave raiders. So he he was kidnapped to become a slave. Were they going to sell him? I mean, what were they going to do with him? They were. They, uh, they took him back to Ireland, uh, and along with the... Uh, other people they had kidnapped there. This was a fairly common thing back then. Uh, and they sold him into slavery. We don't really know exactly where, probably somewhere on the West Coast. Uh, but he was sold into slavery in Ireland and was a, uh, a sheep herder for uh, six or seven years until he heard uh, in his sleep the voice of God saying, it's time to go home. <laughs> wow. So he got direct uh, guidance then through, what, a dream? 
He did. Uh, it was a dream, a couple of dreams, actually. And he said he resisted it at first, but uh, then he said, "Yes, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do it." And so he became a runaway slave, which was a death sentence for yeah. anybody. So he had to uh, escape then. He, he he had to escape. Yes, he wasn't. They wouldn't have let him go freely. And so he escapes, and he says he goes uh, about 180 miles, which is uh, all the way across Ireland, uh, where he finds a ship. Uh, that will reluctantly take him uh, back to Britain. And so he makes it back eventually to Britain, to his parents' home. Uh, he's in his early 20s at this point, and he says they were thrilled uh, to have him back. <laughs> so uh, so he's back home. What, what are his career goals at this point? Well, it... it, it for all we know, he just wanted to, to live out his life there and be a, a, a nice Roman landlord. But uh, again, he got uh, voices and visions in his sleep from God. Uh, and he said uh, that God called him back to Ireland, and he resisted this. He didn't want to do it. Uh, but uh, God, he said God called him back to Ireland. And so uh, somehow uh, during that time, whether it was in Britain or if he went to, uh, to Gaul, modern-day France, uh, he got training in ordination, uh, and eventually he became a bishop and went back to Ireland as a missionary. Was he was already ordained a bishop when he went back to Ireland? Well, that's the one thing we're not quite sure about. Uh, he was certainly ordained as a priest, uh, but whether or not he was a bishop after he got to Ireland or before, it's, it's unclear. Mm -hmm. um, what was he? What was he? What was his ministry like before he returned to Ireland? What do we know about it? Well, we know that he spent some years in training. You know, this is the 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 the, the, uh, the dark period of Patrick's life. We don't know exactly what happened, okay. how long it happened, where he was. Uh, but he uh, he got the training, and as soon as possible, evidently, he went back to Ireland to work among the very people who had enslaved him. Hmm. Did he have great reluctance, or had that finally been worked out of his system? It seemed that it, he, he, he worked it out. Uh, he, when he went back to Ireland, he was ready to go, and he would have had to have been because it was a very dangerous, uh, difficult thing. And he, uh, he talks about the years that he worked in Ireland, and it was never easy at all. Uh, he was threatened. He was uh, beaten. He was kidnapped. He uh, went through all sorts of uh, incredible physical and mental uh, difficulties uh, in order to preach the gospel back in Ireland. Talk to me about, uh, by the way, my guest is uh, Philip Freeman. He's the author of St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. Talk to me about the, um, the social setting. I mean, what, what, how was, was society arranged in Ireland at that time? Was it tribal? Uh, it was. Okay. It was. It was very different from what Patrick had known, what anybody would have known within the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire was uh, divided into provinces, and there were cities. In Ireland, there were no cities at all. Dublin wouldn't be founded until the Vikings came along centuries later. The um, uh, It was tribal. There were at least a hundred different autonomous, independent tribes constantly yeah. fighting, constantly at war with each other. Uh, and so Patrick had to negotiate the really difficult tribal politics uh, that in Ireland, and he had to uh, gain safe passage from tribe to tribe, uh, and it just was a, a totally different world uh, than uh, than he was used to. Hmm. Now this, so this took considerable sacrifice on his part. I mean, he he was he's going into really undeveloped territory. Yes, and as Patrick says, it was uh, the end of the world. And from uh, from a Roman point of view, it certainly was. If you stand on the west coast of Ireland 
and look west. Uh, there's nothing there. Uh, so he was going into uh, he was going into the one Celtic land that the Romans had not conquered, uh, and the Romans never made it to Ireland except as businessmen and traders. They never the legions never landed there. So uh, he was going into a wild, the wild west, quite literally, uh, and uh, in order to do his work. And it was it was he sacrificed everything. He gave up everything in order to do this. Hmm. What was the, his missionary strategy? Uh, did he do uh, street preaching? <laughs> well, as far as, as, far as we can tell. Did he talk to kings, or how did he go about? He certainly had success. We know he had success with, the, he talks about the sons and daughters of kings converting oh. to Christianity. But he also talks about working with slaves, and especially slave women in Ireland. So he worked all across the social spectrum, uh, and he did... Uh, you know, what he did was, the first thing he would have had to have done, we know, is gain permission from each of these tribal kings in order to uh, preach in their territory, which would have involved giving them gifts and, and money and gold and, and anything he could uh, to uh, to get his way in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we know he just preached the gospel. And he, uh, he has a, uh, in one of his letters, he talks about what he believes, and he—it's pretty much just the Nicene Creed that uh, oh. people would say in church every uh, every Sunday. It's nothing—it's nothing exotic. Uh, the Christianity that Patrick preached was straightforward Orthodox Catholic Christianity. With all these tribes, what kind of religion did they practice? What sense of spirituality did they have? Was there an overarching? Uh, worldview that they all shared, or did they have very distinct um, beliefs uh, within each tribal group? Well, uh, both, actually. Uh, they they certainly had, uh, they were polytheistic, so they were like the Greeks and Romans in that, that sense. They had multiple gods. Uh, they had uh, a god named Luke, who was a, a craftsman god, who seems to be sort of at the head of things. Uh, but uh, it was uh, there was not one certainly not one single god. Uh, this was a very foreign notion uh, to the Irish, and the different tribes would have had their their favorite gods, their local gods, uh, male and female uh, alike. Uh, so he was uh, he was walking into a world full of gods, which is hard for us to imagine. It would have been uh, much more like uh, like India, uh, like Hindu India, mm. than anything yes. that we can uh, that we can imagine. Uh, what what, what were Druids? Druids were the priests. They were uh, very well-trained, um, uh, very disciplined people who were the priests of the Irish uh, religion. They were the ones who did the sacrifice. They, uh, they were intermediaries. They performed ceremonies. They were also quite good at science, uh, we know. Uh, and so anybody who was Irish who wanted to do a sacrifice to the gods for a good crop or whatever it might be, they would go to a druid, and the druid would uh, perform the ceremony for them. Do you know if these druids were interchangeable between tribes? We know that they they, they were actually. They could walk. Uh, they were one of the few people who could cross uh, between tribes, hmm. uh, and um, most people couldn't. Uh, just your average farmer couldn't. But a druid could pass freely all throughout Ireland, and so we know it was a very extensive network of, of druids uh, that. Um, so this he's up against a well organized even though it's polytheistic and there's multiple tribes it sounds as though it was a pretty intact overall world view that he had to confront it was uh, and the interesting thing is about Ireland is unlike a lot of places we don't have really many stories of martyrs it's uh, the the druids seem to have 
Uh, I don't know that they accepted Patrick's message because we have records of Druids and the old religion being around for a number of centuries after yeah. Patrick, but, right. but they don't seem to have fought him. They didn't try to burn him at the stake or anything like that. So you, I, at least I get the feeling that the Druids were very reasonable. They, they probably listened to Patrick, and most of them would have shook their heads and said no, but, but some of them uh, certainly uh, would have converted and become the, uh, among the first priests and Christians of Ireland. Wow. My guest, uh, Dr. Philip Freeman, is the author of St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. And uh, it's fascinating because there is, a, there is a good deal of historical information on Patrick. And we're going to continue looking at his uh, mission and the setting uh, that he operated in and the outcomes. Uh, then we'll also look at his own confession. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Philip Freeman, looking at St. Patrick of Ireland. Uh, Philip has authored a, a biography uh, entitled St. Patrick of Ireland. I'm, I'm curious about uh, family structure. Uh, in, in classical Rome, one of the uh, appeals of Christianity to women was that uh, it, it practiced chastity, preached preach chastity anyways, and uh, women could look upon church attendance as a place where they would be more highly regarded than in the surrounding Roman culture. And I'm just wondering, uh, was did women have an? Did they find did Irish women find Christianity appealing for those same reasons? I think so. Uh, we know uh, actually a good deal about the social situation and the status of women in early Ireland, and I would say it was, it was more, more equality than you would have in Rome, but certainly it was still a man's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that uh, from Patrick's writings that the women, he had a lot of women followers, a lot of women who became Christians, and I'm sure they did it for a lot of sincere spiritual reasons, but it was also liberating for them. We had a, a number, we have records of a number of them becoming um, nuns, although there's not a, a, a great structure. They, they, they called themselves virgins of Christ and formed their own communities, mm-hmm. and really took themselves out of the whole social uh, picture uh, of the, the hierarchy, the setting of Ireland, which made actually a lot of enemies because... Um, the fathers there naturally wanted to marry their daughters to a successful warrior uh, mm-hmm. over the hill. And, yeah. and uh, if they became virgins for Christ, uh, that was no longer an option. So Patrick writes about some fathers uh, beating their daughters who mm. became Christians. Wow. Oh, uh, was it a polygamous 
uh, it was polytheistic, but was it also polygamous? It was, uh, at least for the men. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they certainly could have more than one wife. Uh, and it was, I mean, it's fascinating. There are actually nine different ranks of wives uh, really? within, uh, within Ireland from, I mean, just all sorts of different uh, obligations. And, and a man could marry uh, as many wives as he could afford, basically. Uh, but uh, w- most women, most men uh, we have records of just had a single wife. I think probably it was honestly too much trouble to have more than one and too expensive. Uh, so <laughs> they uh, they um, would just have one. But yeah, it was uh, it was polygamous, uh, and there were all sorts of rules. Like uh, uh, the first wife was allowed, if a husband brought home another wife, she was allowed to beat this new wife for three days. <laughs> and Just all sorts of interesting uh, little rules uh, that they had. But, uh, but yeah, it was polygamous. Hmm. Um, what, what years are we talking about? I don't think I established that earlier on. Well, the best guess, I mean, traditional dates of Patrick in, in arriving in Ireland in 432 A.D., of okay. course, and it, that's probably about right. So somewhere in the 5th century, so somewhere in the 400s, if I were to guess, I would say Patrick was probably born in the late 390s, maybe about the year 400, and lived, uh, we don't know how long he lived, some people say into the 360s, some people into, I'm sorry, the 460s, some into the 490s, we really don't know, but he is living and operating within the 5th century, which is uh, a century of tremendous turmoil. The, The Western Roman Empire is falling apart, uh, the Anglo-Saxon invasions into Britain, so a uh, tremendous turmoil going on. Who was Coroticus? Coroticus was a king in Britain. Uh, he was the one who sent the slave raiders to Ireland uh, later in Patrick's life and kidnapped some of Patrick's converts and took them back to Britain. Mm. So uh, Patrick had to write to him or his agents directly. Right, and so he sent a letter to uh, King Croticus and to the warriors of Croticus, and uh, I have this feeling that this was a letter that went out broadly uh, to Britain, uh, saying, you know, you, you've got to get these uh, slaves back. These are Christians. These are your brothers and sisters. You cannot do this. Uh, and as far as we know, it did not work. It didn't work. What threat did he pose to Croticus? Well, he... The threat was a moral one. He right. had no power over him, mm-hmm. but uh, it seemed, uh, I would imagine, it embarrassed Coroticus terribly, uh, and also uh, it, it angered the bishops in Britain, because the bishops in Britain were the ones who had the moral authority over Coroticus. Uh, and, and so here you have a successful king, uh, who's a British king, who's a Christian, uh, and you have this bishop over in Ireland writing letters and saying, you can't do this. Well, the, the bishops back in Britain are, are feel like uh, Patrick is impinging on their territory, uh, and so they certainly got mad at Patrick for this. Hmm. Um, could Patrick um, have raised up troops in defense of these uh, fellow Christians? We don't have any record that he had any sort of uh, either interest or ability uh, mm-hmm. in doing uh, that sort of thing. So he had to use persuasion. And if you read the, the letter to the to, to Coroticus, it's, it's a wonderful persuasion. It is a a, uh, a fire and brimstone sermon uh, that's <laughs> just uh, amazing. Can, can do you have a uh, part of it in front of you there? Yeah, let me see what I can find here. It's uh, like the uh, he uh, talks about. Um, Oh, goodness. Uh, 
Let's see, he is writing actually to the soldiers of Caroticus, and he says, I earnestly implore all of you who are holy people and humble of heart, it is wrong to seek the favor of such men or to eat bread and drink with them. Please do not even take alms from them until they repent, weeping before God and release the servants of God and the baptized handmaids of Christ. And, uh, and that's one of the, some of the nicer stuff he says uh, to them. Um, there's a there's an attempt here. I, I just looked looked it up in your book where he says he seems to say, "Do you know what the Roman Christians of Gaul do? They send holy right. experienced men to the pagan Franks." What was he trying to get at there? Well, he was saying that you know maybe I can buy them back from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a precedent set that uh, the, the the Christians of Gaul uh, would would ransom captive uh, Christian slaves from the Franks, and so Patrick is saying, well, you know, maybe we can work something out. <laughs> See, he was trying everything at his disposal, uh, short he of was. war and violence, yeah. Absolutely. He tried everything uh, that he could do, uh, and we have no record that, that he was successful at all. Uh, talk to me about his confession. What was the occasion for him to actually write it? Well, the confession is just a wonderful uh, defense of his life and his ministry. Uh, what he seems to be doing, and we have to look at the confession to try to figure out what, what the occasion is, uh, he seems to be in trouble with the bishops of Britain, uh, because he is uh, multiple reasons. They are, uh, I think they're mostly just upset at him for uh, for uh, going his own way in Ireland uh, mm-hmm. and uh, doing things they wouldn't do. Uh, but he's not sending enough money back to Britain, uh, they they think. Uh, and uh, even though he's preaching standard Catholic doctrine, um, they are upset about his success in Ireland. Uh, and also, they, uh, are, they they dig up some dirt on Patrick, something he did back when, before he was even kidnapped, uh, back when he was 15 years old or so. And they, they don't say exactly what it is. That's the interesting thing. But uh, they, they use this uh, uh, to try to get him to come and stand trial in Britain, which he refuses to do. <laughs> so the confession reads as uh, a personal testimony, or is it strongly creedal? Uh, it's a personal testimony with a creed at the start of it, and I think Patrick does that very deliberately. He wants to establish uh, for the bishops and for everybody else that he is an Orthodox Christian preaching standard Catholic doctrine. He's not some sort of hybrid Druid priest or anything right. weird like that. No syncretism uh, with him. Yeah. Right, no syncretism going on. This is this is plain vanilla Christianity that uh, that he's preaching, uh, and but it's mostly about his life. Uh, he tells his life story. He tells uh, about the difficulties of his ministry in Ireland, everything that he's been through. He talks a lot about the women of Ireland um, and the slave women of Ireland and what just horrible times they go through trying to maintain their Christian faith uh, in a in a just impossible situation for them. Um, and it's uh, it's just it's an insight into the the soul of a man, unlike anything we get in, in the ancient world. I mean, you can read Caesar and Cicero and whatever you want, and you will never get an insight into what I, what's going on inside a person like you will reading the Confession of Patrick. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, we have the Confessions of Augustine, which are considered yeah. kind of uh, more interior than other um, looks at ancient figures, and Patrick as well. So you have right. two Christians there that have a, right. a rich interior life by comparison. Uh, to their uh, contemporaries. 
what was Ireland like after Patrick? What was his imprint? I mean, we talk about him now, but when, right. did, did, did he have immediate success? Was Did he have an impact on culture? Or is that something well, that comes later? He says that he converted thousands of, uh, of, of people. We don't know, you know if that's true uh, exactly or not. I think probably it is. Uh, he must have worked there for decades. Um, but um, uh, Patrick was not the first Christian in Ireland, uh, but he, I think, was very successful. He was preaching probably more in the north than anywhere else. Uh, and and uh, Ireland becomes Christian slowly. It takes time. It takes a, a couple of hundred years before it's it's a, totally a Christian um, uh, nation, to Christian Ireland. But uh, Patrick uh, was a, a, a an important part of this. And it's not just bringing in a new religion, but uh, bringing in writing and reading, uh, which uh, before that really wasn't there. Uh, and so it's, it is a transformation of the entire culture uh, in a way that, that's hard to imagine. Hmm. The monastic founder, uh, Columba, is born in 521, so that's, what, 80 years after? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, when, this, when, he found, when he's founding monasteries on the continent, uh, Columbanus, by the way, um, yeah. is, he, is Patrick part of the memory, the living memory? Oh, I think so. Okay. Uh, we have uh, his uh, Patrick's confession and his letter uh, survive, and they survive in Europe actually better than they do in Ireland. And so the earliest manuscripts are actually uh, some of the earliest are in Europe. Uh, and so the story of Patrick spread uh, as Columbanus and all the others uh, established monasteries throughout Europe. Uh, and so Patrick is a part of the heritage, and and for centuries thereafter. Um, he is, and he's known, but really he's, he's much more of a national and, and a local saint. Uh, the whole idea of St. Patrick's Day was not something that came along until uh, really uh, modern times. Mm, okay. What are, some of, what are some of legendary elements that people may confuse as historical? Well, first of all, the idea that Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. Okay. There, there weren't any snakes in Ireland. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, things like... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. The um, the shamrock, the three leaf clover. Uh, Patrick um, never talks about using that, although okay. it's a, a great illustration of the Trinity. But mm-hmm. um, I think just things like that. Okay, Philip. Once again, thank you. That's very very helpful and a wonderful look at uh, Patrick. And uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. That's great. My pleasure. Dr. Philip Freeman. It's Saint Patrick of Ireland. That's the name of the book. Saint Patrick of Ireland, a biography. It reads beautifully, and it's organized so that you can go right through his life. Lovely. I'm Al Cresta.